Tonight on The Other Side Australia, Donald Trump found guilty in a civil assault trial. But was he really? The story is not all that it seems. We'll bring you the other side of that in the next hour. And our national broadcaster's day of shame. The ABC's woeful coverage of the coronation gets slammed by the ABC. G'day and welcome to The Other Side Australia. I'm Damien Curry, and this is the show that presents a different take on the news of the week for people who are smart and who want to make sure they've heard all sides of an argument before you make your mind up on things. You'll probably disagree with some of what we say. I think you'll agree with most of it, though. But most of all, we hope you enjoy the ride. Welcome to this week's episode 205 of The Other Side Australia, first streaming Friday, May 12 on ADH-TV. I want to start this week with a little story. This is a story about an imaginary friend of mine named Jemima. Jemima and her husband earn $100,000 a year for their family after tax. That's their total take-home pay. Now, they're really nice people, but they don't budget well, and they're currently spending as a family about $110,000 a year. So every year they need to borrow about $10,000 just to balance the budget. By 2020, they'd been doing that for five years and they had a credit card debt sitting at $50,000. They simply couldn't pay it down and the interest that they're paying on it is making it even harder every year to stick to the family budget. Now in early 2020, someone in their family got very sick sadly from a virus and they had to take more credit to pay all the medical bills, which amounted to another $100,000 over three years. Now that person's better now, but they've got this credit card debt now up to $150,000. It's really hard to pay off and the interest rates are higher and they're rising so they just don't know what the future holds. Then all of a sudden, through sheer good luck, Jemima won $10,000 in the lottery. She's doing the budget that night and she tells her hubby, Anthony, hey, elbow. She calls him elbow because he often has a, a sore elbow. You know how every year we spend $110,000, but we only earn $100,000? Well, this year we're gonna have a budget surplus. I just won 10,000 in the lottery. And Elbow says, but honey, shouldn't we use that to pay down our credit card debt and you know, still try to cut down on all the stuff we waste money on? And Jemima says, no, the kids will hate us if we do that. Let's just keep spending, <clears throat> excuse me, let's just keep spending as much as usual. Actually, let's spend even more than usual because we can just add to the debt in the future. We don't have to worry about the repayments this year because we'll be able to cover them easily because of the lottery win. And Elbow says, okay, yeah, that sounds good. The most important thing is that we stay popular with the kids, but I do feel bad. We really should pay down some of the debt. It is huge and it does keep me up at night. You know, interest rates are rising, darling. And what happens if we can't even pay off the interest one year? We'll lose the house. And the kids might like us today while they're still young and stupid. But in 10 to 20 years, when they grow up, they're going to be very, very angry about that huge debt we're leaving them. But Jemima isn't worried. She just says, nah, all good. We have a surplus this year, and that's all that matters. I'm off to wine club to tell all the girls how great I am at doing the family budget and getting us into surplus this year. We need to celebrate. And off she goes to wine club to pat herself on the back and all of her friends on the back for, well, not much really. I want to acknowledge the finance minister. 
Uh, I have frankly never worked with a better person, and I ask you to put your hands together for Katie Gallagher. I want to acknowledge the Prime Minister again and thank him for being here today, but most of all, for thank him for providing the leadership behind this budget. I want to thank our colleagues on the Expenditure Review Committee for providing the scrutiny. I want to acknowledge Stephen Kennedy and the Treasury team. I'm so lucky to work with Stephen and his colleagues. I want to acknowledge Jenny Wilkinson's Finance Department as well, the Cabinet Secretariat and the broader public service under Glyn Davis's leadership. I want to thank my community for providing the inspiration. I want to thank my wife, Laura, uh, my kids, who sat through the speech last night. It means a lot to me that you're here. That's Treasurer Jim Chalmers. He's a really, really great guy. The only people he didn't thank from his ballroom in the Canberra bubble were the people who provide all the money that they get to play with. The real heroes of Australia, you. The small businesses, the people who slog it out every day in big businesses, the tradies and the workers who pay all the taxes. How about a little bit of thanks for the really productive side of Australia, Jim? But that little story about Jim Imer is all you really need to understand about this year's federal budget. Patting yourself and your mates on the back for winning the lottery and spending it when you have a massive credit card bill sitting at home is absolutely insane. The newspapers like to tell us who all the budget winners and losers are, but really, we're all losers. And this isn't about Labor or Liberal. They're all the same, overspending endlessly. Morrison and Frydenberg's little COVID extravaganza was a train wreck of overspending, and much, much worse because it betrayed the values of their political party. Government will always spend on government. It's about government. It will always make itself bigger and more powerful. Why wouldn't it? There's absolutely no incentive to do anything else, especially when we not only keep letting them, but we even demand it of them. If they don't keep giving us all free handouts, we won't vote for them. Nobody rewards politicians who say they need to cut government services and spending anymore. We need to do the right thing and pay off the debt. Oh no, you can't say that. Nobody supports them until it's too late and the pain is right in your face. The Labor versus Liberal thing is a charade. This is really all about working productive Australians, the taxpayers, versus big government, the tax spenders. A lot of the people who work for the government and a lot of uh, people who go every day into public service jobs add a lot of value to our country. I'm not saying they don't. Not every government employee doesn't pull their weight and we definitely need some government. But our government is way too big. And talk about winners and losers in the budget is just a big fat con job. It's just shuffling the deck chairs on what I hope won't become the Titanic. We're in surplus on the family budget only for this year, only if you ignore the massive credit card bill, and only because they won the lottery. We've had a record two-year population surge over, after COVID, with more than 700,000 new migrants all well employed and all paying tax. We've had wages growth, which has also massively increased the tax haul for the government. And that's been amplified by good old bracket creep. Oh, look, honey, bad news. We're now in a higher tax bracket. Yeah, because the tax brackets haven't been adjusted for 15 years. And we've had a commodity price windfall on coal, iron ore and gas, lifting the tax take 
to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. Add inflation to all of that, and it's little wonder that there's more tax dollars in the coffers. One economist told the Australian newspaper this week that, quote, the economy is currently kinder to government finances than at any other time in the century and a half since gold rushes dominated the colonies. On the flip side of all that, here's Jim's spending list. Never mind that economists warned Albo and Chalmers to avoid a big spending budget. They're upping the job seeker bill by almost 5 billion. Rent assistance, 2.7 billion. Doctor visits, 3.5 billion. $11 billion in pay rises to aged care workers, a $2 billion hydrogen fund, more income for single mums, more childcare subsidies. This is not a budget for middle-class productive Australians that will inspire people to get out and have a go and grow the pie for everyone else. This is a welfare state budget that won't help the poor in the long term and will damage everybody in the process. It's classic socialism, pure and simple. And socialism, although it sounds lovely and nice and kind, it simply never works. It leads to long-term poverty, suffering and death. The kids are getting what they voted for, and it's the same old socialist con job. Win the kids' votes with lots of nice free stuff, then send them the bill later, like in 30 years. The kids who vote Labor and Green don't even understand economics. They have no idea. They will be footing the bill when they finally grow up. The only numbers that matter are these ones. Net debt set to jump from about 550 billion, that's $550,000 million, to 700 billion in 2026, if everything goes to plan, which you can bet it won't. And now read the fine print from the Australian at the bottom there. It's net debt, gross debt, which is really probably a more accurate representation in my view, gross debt will be more than a trillion dollars. That's a million million dollars. And that is just the federal government. Chuck on another half a trillion for the states and we have about $1.5 trillion debt, which is $57,000 for every man, woman and child in this country. Are you happy with that? You personally owing 57 grand? Or if you have two people who depend on you, 170 grand for the three of you, it's unprecedented. The only answer is this, stop voting for political parties that spend. Only vote for parties and politicians who give a commitment that they will shrink the size of government and rein in spending. It takes guts as a politician to stand up and say that because it sounds awful when you say we're going to cut this and cut that, we're going to lay off all these people and we've got to reduce the size of government. People don't like it when they hear it. It's hard to say. So we've got to reward them. We've got to be good to those politicians who have the guts to say that. If we don't start standing on our own two feet soon, as a nation, we're stuffed. And with net zero looming large, there won't be coal and gas tax windfalls to get us out of trouble for much longer. You're watching or listening to episode five of series two of The Other Side Australia, first streamed Friday, May 12, 2023. 
I'm Damien Curry, and the other side is your weekly shortcut to the best news commentary from Australia and abroad, taking you to the weekend up to date with the big news in culture and politics from a classical liberal and conservative perspective. Something very different in Australia where much of the media is quite boring and woke. We're on ADH TV. You can watch anytime on the web at adh.tv, or even better, you can download the ADH TV app on your smartphone, your computer, or your smart TV, and enjoy all our shows at the click of a button. You can also find us on all good podcast platforms too. Just up, search up The Other Side Australia, and you can follow us on Twitter for regular updates at Other Side Oz, Other Side Oz, that's A-U-S, and ADHTV Oz, also with an A-U-S. The next story isn't suitable for the youngsters and a word of warning to those who may find talk of sexual assault distressing to jump ahead 10 minutes. Donald Trump has been found guilty of sexually abusing an American former magazine columnist in a New York department store back in 1996. That's 27 years ago. This was a civil trial brought by this woman, E.J. Carroll. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished, which the word rape carries so many sexual connotation this was not this was not sexual for it just it it hurt it just what it just you know but i think most people think of rape as a i mean it is a violent assault it is not i think most people think of rape as being sexy mm. let's take a short break think of the fantasies mm. we're just going to take a quick break if you can stick around we'll talk more on the other side you're fascinating to talk to <laughs> rape is sexy that's E. Jean Carroll in a 2019 interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, who clearly wasn't expecting that. Uh, let's cut to a commercial break fast. Anderson Cooper introduced his guest by explaining that she alleged she was assaulted by Trump in a popular department store dressing room. Back in the uh, mid-90s, that's when writer and Elle magazine advice columnist E. Jean Carroll says this happened in a dressing room at the New York clothing store Bergdorf Goodman just steps away from Trump Tower. She writes about it and other painful encounters in her book, What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. We spoke just a short time ago. Whoa, 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 whoa. hang on. Stop. Um, she wrote a book called What Do We Need Men For? She thinks rape is sexy. And when all this broke, it was just before the US presidential election? Okay. Believe all women, believe all women. Carry on. I want to begin just by asking you about the latest thing that the president has said just moments, a short time ago. He gave an interview to The Hill. He said, I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Number two, it never happened. It never happened, okay? I love that. You I am that. so glad I am not his type. I am <laughs> so glad. This, is, this was 20 years ago, and I probably was... At that moment, in that five minutes, the most attractive woman in Bergdorf's, in that one bit of time. And you think that's what it was about for him? I don't know what it was about. We were, Anderson, we were having a high old time. You remember Donald Trump, hail fellow well met, walking up and down the streets of New York, greeting everybody. Everybody liked him. He You're was talking about 1995, he was. Shakespearean. He was great. You'd love to see him on the street. So when we met in Bergdorf's and he said, help me, uh, advise me to find a president, I was delighted. I was thrilled. Okay. So things must have turned pretty bad pretty fast. 
so you were in, in you say you were in Bergdorf Goodman. I was coming out of Bergdorf's. Which was, was a store I heard you liked a lot. It's a posh and cozy. Your whole just, face lights up when you talk about Bergdorf. I, just, by the way. I was just there today. Okay. It just, I just loved it. So I was coming out, and he was coming in. He was standing out, and he put his hand like this. So I did not go through the revolving door. He came in. He said, hey, you're that advice lady. And I said, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. He said, come advise me. I want to buy a present. I said, oh, for who? He said, for a girl. So I was enchanted. It was such a great moment. Uh-huh. So how about the handbags? Oh no, he doesn't want a handbag. Well, how about a hat? So uh, we went to the hats and he immediately put a, grabbed a fur hat, of course. And I said, oh, you can't put a dead animal on your head. And then I found out later, of course, all of his women wear those fur hats. Mm-hmm. Ivana, Ivanka, they, have you, you've seen mm-hmm. pictures. They all wear, okay. I realize this is a long clip, but to edit it too much would be to miss the fullness of, uh, of her description and miss the point. So please bear with us because we want to show you all of the most important parts of her story. I said, how old is the young lady? And he said, how old are you? And I said, 52. And he said, you're so old. He said that? Of course. He said, you're so old. And shortly after that, he said, I know lingerie or he could have said underwear. And so we went up the escalator, we went to the lingerie department, it was empty, there was nobody there. That's gonna sound strange, people, that nobody was in the- Because Bergdorf's is the greatest store on the earth. They take care of whatever you want there, there. Mm -hmm. If you're thirsty, they'll bring you water, they'll get you whatever, they'll call all over the country to get whatever you want. It was a moment in time, nobody was there, Mm -hmm. Uh, plus, a dressing room door was open, which is very unusual because usually they're locked. He said he wanted you to help him pick out some lingerie. Well, he, it can't because he was not having it with the hats. Okay. The hats were, okay. So then we went up. He was going to get some lingerie. And I am just like, oh, well, I can dine out forever on this story. We're going to go get lingerie. You know, in these uh, he says, she says cases, the credibility of the witness really is everything. People make stuff up. They remember things wrongly. They think they're telling the truth, but they aren't, or they are actually telling the truth. The person who is alleged to have committed the sexual assault is at the mercy of the jury and the court as to whether or not they believe the witness is credible. There are two or three boxes on the counter, the fancy, remember the old fashioned lingerie boxes, and a filmy see-through bodysuit in lilac gray. And he snatches it up and he says, go try this on. I said, you try it on. He said, no, it looks like it fits you. I said, it goes with your eyes. He said, no, go put this on. And Anderson. So at this point, it's you're saying it's uh, a friendly joshing. joshing. I used to be a writer at Saturday Night Live. I see an entire sketch of making Donald Trump put this filmy thing over his pants. That is what I'm thinking. Mm. I am not thinking. I think it's I just I was laughing as I said it. He said, well, you know, he went like this and I walked in. Stupid. So for you, this was kind of a, a New York moment. Like oh, one of the those best things. New York. Just uh-huh. like the best New York. Donald Trump is going to put on a filmy bodysuit. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I couldn't. So he, let's go in the dressing room. I thought, yeah, I'm going to make him put pants on. Walked in. And the minute I was in there, he shut the door and pushed me up against the wall and bang, bang my head on the wall and kiss me. I just, it was so shocking. And he put his shoulder against me. 
to hold me against the wall. And at that point, I realized that I was in a very difficult situation. Did he say anything? No. No. It was just like, we're going to do this thing. We're just so hot for each other. Uh, or I don't, why would I even try to think what he was thinking? Anyway, so he pushed me, you know, he pushed me, held me over the shoulder, and I was wearing a, a coat dress and tights, and he pulled down the tights. And so um, that's he pulled what, it with, with He pulled it with both hands, with one hand? One. And um, that was when it turned serious. I realized that this was, this was, this was a fight. Um, and even though I can talk about it now uh, and put words to it, at the time the adrenaline is pouring through me and all I want to do is, right. How would you describe, what, were you, you, you said you were, you were obviously fighting. surprised, fighting. Right. Were you scared? Were you no, angry? No, I was too panicked to be scared. It's really horrible stuff. Donald Trump completely denies that any of this happened. The jury did not agree. It found he was guilty of sexual assault, but not of rape. And they awarded him to pay five million US dollars to the victim. President Trump slammed the verdict as a disgrace. We were even, almost even in height. And down go the tights. And it was against my will. And it hurt, and it was a fight. And this is not a question I would normally ask, and if, if you don't want to answer, I totally understand. Um, but given the prior accusations, which have all been of forms of assault or harassment, um, you're saying there was actual penetration? Yes. Did you, uh, which is, puts it into a different category of any of these other, any of the other act, uh, women who have come forward? Um, I think techno I mean that that is that is the definition of of rape. One definition. That's the definition. Yes. And that is where CNN stops the video on its YouTube channel. But there was more. The bit I showed you earlier, which we found elsewhere. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished. Which the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not. This was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, what, it just, you know. But I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not I think most sexual. people think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. <laughs> I wonder why CNN left that out. Remember what we said last week about media bias being in what they don't show you rather than what they do show you? Now, we try not to do that, so we're going to show you this also. I'm not one of these people who cares about whether Trump is a nice man. I care about having leaders who shake up the stinking rotten bureaucracies that are killing Western liberal democracies. So I really don't care how gross Donald Trump might be in his private life. But if he did actually rape somebody, he needs to go to jail because he's a rapist. But nobody's proven anything yet. And lots of people have tried very hard to get him. Anyway, during this trial brought by the woman who thinks rape is sexy, Trump had to give a deposition by video, which was released this past week. In it, he's asked to explain his locker room comments that he made in the now famous 
access, or infamous, I should say, access Hollywood bus tape. You know, the one where he said he, the, the really classy thing about stars being able to grab women. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the That's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. And now you said before, a couple of minutes ago, that this was just locker room talk. It's locker room talk. And so does that mean that you didn't really mean it? No, it's locker room talk. I don't know. It's just the way people talk. Did you or anyone on your staff reach out to anyone at Bergdorf Goodman? I didn't have to reach out to anybody because it didn't happen. Um, and, and by the way, if it did happen, it would have been reported within minutes. Talking about going to a major floor, probably, I assume, the most important floor, uh, a major floor in a major department store that's a very busy store, by the way, and checkout counters and everything else. and. I would be in there. I mean, it's the most ridiculous, it's the most ridiculous, disgusting story. It was just made up. He really doesn't do himself any favors, though, does he, old Donald? I saw her in a picture. I didn't know what she looked like. Uh, and I said it, and I say it with as much respect as I can, but she is not my type. And again, when you say type, you just refer to looking at photos. So you mean physically she's not your type? Uh, physically she's not my type. And now that I've gotten indirectly to hear things about her, she wouldn't be my type in any way, shape, or form. But when you were talking back on June 24th, you were referring to her not being your type physically. I correct? saw a photo of her. Okay. And the only difference between me and other people is I'm honest. She's not my type. Donald Trump in a deposition at the civil trial into sexual assault and rape allegations against him. The jury found it more likely than not that Trump sexually abused Ms. Carroll, ordering him to pay her the five million bucks. Jurors also found Trump defamed her in comments that he made in 2019 when denying her allegations. At least 15 other women have made historical claims of sexual harassment or assault against President Trump. While this may indicate a pattern of poor behaviour, none of these other accusers have alleged rape. And it should also be taken into consideration that as a political figure, Trump is more prone to campaigns of reputation attack. We're making no claim to know the truth one way or the other, but we need to see all the information and consider all angles of these kinds of cases. Because the fantasy the radical feminists want us all to swallow is that men are always evil predators and lying, and women are always saintly victims and telling the truth. Reality is often much muddier and much more complex than that. Which brings me to our next story. America's highest rating news show host, Tucker Carlson, has given some insight into his next move in a video he posted to Twitter on Tuesday. Carlson was let go at the peak of his success by Fox News a couple of weeks ago. It's odd. They never said why. They just lost a billion dollar lawsuit, so their share price was falling. 
And they decided that that would be a good time to boot their absolute cash cow primetime superstar. Tucker's new video was posted under the heading, We're Back. He started with a little media lesson for us, a pretty good one, I reckon, given what we've just seen in that last story. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies, but most of the time that's not exactly right. Much of what you see on television or read the New York Times is in fact true in the literal sense. It could pass one of the media's own fact checks. Lawyers would be willing to sign off on it. In fact, they may have, but that doesn't make it true. It's not true. At the most basic level, the news you consume is a lie, a lie of the stealthiest and most insidious kind. Facts have been withheld on purpose, along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. How does that work? Let's see. If I tell you that a man has been unjustly arrested for armed robbery, that is not, strictly speaking, a lie. He may have been framed. At this point, there's been no trial, so no one can really say. But if I don't mention the fact that the same man has been arrested for the same crime six times before, am I really informing you? No, I'm not. I'm misleading you. And that's what the news media are doing in every story that matters every day of the week, every week of the year. What's it like to work in a system like that? After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Now, just to be clear, it isn't in our constitution in Australia. Maybe that's what we should be having a referendum on. Over the past two decades, we have seen a very serious decline in our right to free speech in this country. The attack on free speech has been waged in two ways disguised as virtuous. First, under the premise of anti-discrimination laws that limit what we can and can't say in public lest we hurt someone's feelings. Secondly, it's being waged via changes to our defamation laws which have made it easier for people to sue news organizations. These two things protect the elites against scrutiny and lead to excessive self-censorship by journalists and editors and media proprietors. Alan Jones was the highest rating broadcaster when he was told his services were no longer required at both 2GB at the time and later at Sky News at the time. That is self-censorship in action by media organizations. Afraid of being sued, and afraid of being attacked by small but noisy woke activist groups whose bark is far worse than their bite. Both of these things combined are a train wreck for free expression and the necessary work of true investigative journalism. Now I'm talking about real investigative journalism, not the kind that a particular government news organisation does that are actually witch hunts against political opponents. Anyway, back to Tucker. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. 
And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Rupert Murdoch's Fox Corporation swung to a third quarter $54 million loss on Tuesday, May 9, mainly because of the billion dollar court settlement with Dominion Voting Systems. And since the removal of Carlson, the network's ratings have dropped massively. Carlson didn't make any mention of Elon Musk. Musk took over Twitter because he was worried about free speech and excessive political censorship on that site. But Musk tweeted on Tuesday, we have not signed a deal of any kind whatsoever. Tucker is subject to the same rules and rewards of all content creators. Musk also welcomed left-wing content creators to do the same as Tucker intends to do. This latest video from Tucker followed what seemed to be a campaign to trash his reputation in the past week or so. Somebody leaked a bunch of off-air video cuts that were supposed to make Tucker look bad but the whole thing just completely backfired and the videos made him look more human and likeable than ever before. One of the leaked clips shows Carlson arguing with a producer on his show, his long form interview show for Fox Nation. That's Fox News's not very high rating streaming service. The argument was about the producer's demand that he wear a sweater instead of a suit for an interview with the controversial internet men's activist Andrew Tate. Tucker rightly, I think, explains to the producer that although the format of the Fox Nation show is casual and a sweater is the usual look, millions more viewers will be watching a big segment of that interview on his nightly Fox News show. And he wants to look more formal. He doesn't want to look too much like some kind of buddy of Tate's. I, I don't want to be a slave to Fox Nation, which I don't think that many people watch anyway. Um, we're going to, uh, because I, 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 you know, I'm like a representative of the American media now. Speaking to an exile in Romania and welcoming him back into the brotherhood of journalists. Yeah, it would help us out if you wore a sweater, though, because we asked him not to wear a suit. Like, he was panicking about it. We said, you don't have to. Tucker's going to be looking uh, casual. That's just how our show looks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Is that okay? I mean, this is airing on the nighttime show, and I want it to look official. I don't want it to be like bro talk. And I, and I, you know what I mean? Yeah, but the majority of it, like if we go like 45 minutes, it's going to be for Fox Nation. But nobody's going to watch it on Fox Nation. Nobody watches Fox Nation because the site sucks. So I'd really like to just put the dump the whole thing on YouTube. Um, but anyway, that's just my view. Um, uh, I'm just frustrated with uh, in, it, it's hard to use that site. I don't know why they're not fixing it. It's driving me insane. And they're like making like lifetime movies, but they don't they don't work on the infrastructure of the site. Like what? It's crazy. And it drives me crazy because it's like we're doing all this extra work and no one can find it. It's unbelievable, actually. We're doing our part. We're like working like animals to produce all this content and the people in charge of it 
whoever that guy's, whatever his name is, like they're ignoring the fact that the site doesn't work. And it, it's, I think it's like a betrayal of our efforts. That's how I feel. So I, of course, I resent it. Sadly, he did end up wearing the sweater, which just goes to show you can be the number one star on US cable TV, earning tens of millions of dollars and still have colleagues telling you what to do. Anyway, a news report emerged this past week that Carlson is preparing for war against Fox. His $20 million US contract doesn't expire until January 2025, after next year's presidential election. The report says that he's still being paid and therefore he can't join a rival network or start his own. Quoting a friend as saying, his team is preparing for war. He wants his freedom. Carlson is said to have been contacted by Rumble and Newsmax, which have both reportedly agreed to pay him more than he was making at Fox. Someone who knows the situation well is Megan Kelly, who was the host of the Fox News 8 p.m. slot before Tucker. Here's what she had to say on her top rating vodcast this week. Here's what I can tell you. Uh, the Carlson team believes Fox News is not negotiating in good faith. And they are counting on allies to go out there and send a message to Fox News to turn off the dial at 8 p.m., to turn off the dial period on Fox News. The word boycott is being used. It's already happening at least at 8 and to a lesser extent throughout the prime time of Fox News. The ratings continue to be in the toilet. And they want Tucker to sit there on his couch and just cash his Fox checks and basically be immobilized by Fox News, be rendered mute, where he can't say anything between now and January 2025. What about the war in Ukraine, which has very few dissenting voices like Tucker's out there? Is that one of the reasons he was silenced? We know the Murdochs talked to Zelensky weeks before Tucker was axed. They said that Tucker's name did not come up, but what is the reason? We're two weeks later now. We still don't know. He still doesn't know. His lawyers don't know. No one will tell them. He's been completely silenced. His show has been canceled. No one will tell him why. And even Fox News does not appear to be arguing that there was cause for the termination. Tucker should breach. He should come out. He should talk. He should start a rival news network. He should quit. He should forfeit the money. He'll make more money anyway. Megan Kelly speaking about the ongoing dispute between Tucker Carlson and Fox News. While the ABC was falling over itself to apologise for airing the coronation of King Charles, Canada's ABC, the CBC, actually did some real work and got an interview with a senior royal. My mother was the Queen for a very long time. And although you kind of know that this might happen, you don't really think about it very much. Not least of all because the monarchy is about continuity. But I think for my brother you know this is something he's been waiting for and he's probably spent more time thinking about it um for the rest of us it's more a question of okay we have to shift the way we support and that's that's what we need to do and what does that shift look like for you um well that's that's we don't know yet mm. i mean there was a there was an order to the years um because my mother didn't change very much we kind of knew what the rhythm of the year was. Mm -hmm. So that will, things like that will change. And how we are part of the support for the monarchy may change slightly. Who knows? As we know from the massive backlash they've copped this past week, the ABC coverage was woeful. The talking heads spent their time on air endlessly rabbiting on about the trendy neo-Marxist ideas of the moment, like the evils of colonialism. 
Seriously, it's the worldview of someone who didn't get much past first year social science studies at uni, but thinks because they went to uni that they are so much more sophisticated and educated than the rest of us. Even the ABC's own Media Watch show wasn't sure what to make of it, putting poor old Paul Barry into a complete tiz. While other channels brought us only pageantry and pomp, the ABC was bravely debating the future of the monarchy and the dark impact of colonisation on Indigenous Australians. In the name of that crown, martial law was declared on my people, Wiradjuri people. For me, it is um, a bit of time. Uh, and I think that we still have a very big reckoning to go. They were at the heart of the dispossession of the stolen land of our First Nations people and of massacres and attempted genocide in this country and others. That discussion went on for 45 minutes as guests were arriving at Westminster Abbey. So, was it fearless reporting or inappropriate and disrespectful? Only someone at the ABC would need to even ask that question. Even ABC fans were writing in and tweeting about how hideously inappropriate the timing was. As I said on this show last week, if you want to have a debate on a republic, fine. But Australia is, until we have a referendum and vote otherwise, a democratic parliamentary constitutional monarchy. And most of us, according to the polls, and despite the lies you hear on the ABC, are more than happy to keep it that way. There are benefits to having a monarchy. And there is meaning behind all the pomp and ceremony that the grumps like to condemn as a waste of money as they delude themselves that they're so much smarter than the rest of us. Pity they weren't so worried about plunging our countries into poverty and a lack of liberty while cheering on the authoritarian government overreach we saw during COVID. The idea that being a British colony doesn't bring any positives, or didn't bring, sorry, any positives at all to Australia and wasn't inevitable in a world with a huge technology gap between different peoples and societies, I mean, the quaint idea that the Aboriginal people weren't going to have to engage with the rest of the world at some point is a ridiculously childish and naive worldview. And it's one we simply have to stop giving so much airtime in the media and at school and at university. Are you listening, woke teachers? And the national broadcaster shouldn't be giving it any airtime on the actual day of the coronation itself for just one day. Could they just respect our existing national symbols and the status quo? Not every day has to be about tearing apart the fabric of our nation for undergraduate level critical analysis. Even loyal ABC viewers were emailing MediaWatch to complain. I wanted to watch the crowning, not be ear bashed about the past. Honestly, ABC. This is not the time for a Stan Grant rant. I would like to move towards a republic, but today is not the day. The coronation and its symbols represent thousands of years of political, philosophical, social and religious history. You wouldn't disrespect an Aboriginal corroboree or sacred ritual, but you're quite happy to dump on the British, Roman, Greek, European history that gave us trivial things like, oh gee, I don't know, uh, the rule of law, property rights, enforceable contracts, our parliamentary system, our system of ethics and morality, just everything that keeps our societies functioning in the Anglosphere and the Western world. So, no biggie. The ABC defended its coverage, telling The Australian its role is to... Reflect the diversity of views in the community. Hearing from Indigenous Australians and reflecting on Australia's history is an important part of this. Sure, but what about the timing? 
Yeah, what about the timing? No nation can survive so much constant critical analysis. The ABC pays way too much time worrying about appeasing the latest fad desires of the progressive left and ignoring conservatives altogether. Conservatism deserves equal and balanced airtime on a taxpayer-funded broadcaster. Conservatism is simply the view that not everything progressive is automatically good and that best outcomes often come from respecting things of the past and resisting hasty change for change's sake. Now, Canada's CBC is often just as childish and simplistic as our national broadcaster. But this time, it wasn't copying its baby cousin down under. It wasn't constantly putting down British culture and symbolism without understanding that it all actually means something and is very important to the free culture that we inherited from Britain and continue to enjoy the benefits of to this day. Nope, the CBC grew up for a moment. It put its big girl pants on and considered the value the monarchy actually brings to Canada. In addition to being involved with more than 300 charities, she carries out more events than any other royal. And carries with her that sense of responsibility passed on from her mother, the Queen. On August the 15th, 1950, a daughter was born. The little princess was christened Anne Elizabeth Alice Louise. The second child and only daughter of the late Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Princess Anne spoke about the impact that COVID and the lockdowns had on her family, and she agreed with CBC chief correspondent Adrienne Arsenault that it could be described as a thief. I tend to think it, it stole a bit from my father, who you know lost a, a lot of the people who would have gone to see him and talk mm. to him and you know have those conversations that kept him interested, and he lost he lost all of that. I'm sure there are lots of families who will tell you the same thing, that the, for the older generation, losing those contacts, those, the ability to, you know, online didn't do it for everybody. I mean, I'm sorry to bring it up, but I think of that, that image of, of your mother, the Queen, by herself. Yes, in the that funeral. Moment. Yeah. That, that was a thievery. Yeah. yeah, you're quite right. And then, in some ways, I'm glad we didn't see that at that moment. And then when you see the photograph, it's much worse somehow. And you saw more of that than we did, uh, accompanying the coffin. With the coronation still a few days away, the interview respectfully turned to the subject of the future of the monarchy. It's not unnatural that people are having conversations about the monarchy and the place of the monarchy uh, in, in various countries, Canada included. And, and some of the recent polling is, is suggesting that there is a drop in, in the percentage of people who would like to see the monarchy continue. How do you how do you deal with that as a family? Well, we don't, um, in many respects, need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Not least of all, because um, uh, it is the monarch that is the, the key to this, and the constitution um, that underpins the monarchy. We, as a family, see ourselves there as to support that role. What we do, we hope, contributes. Um, to the monarchy and the way in which it can convey continuity. Are there conversations about relevance? There will be everywhere. It's not a conversation that I would necessarily have. I think it's in, it, it perfectly 
true that it, it is a moment where you need to have that discussion. But I would just underline the, that the monarchy provides with the constitution a degree of long-term uh, stability that is actually quite hard to come by any other way. Her Royal Highness and Princess Royal speaking to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So when did Australia begin its historical shift away from Britain? We all know that the six original colonies got together on the 1st of January 1901 to form the Commonwealth of Australia and adopt the Australian Constitution. But before Federation, we were already six self-governing separate colonies. Each colony was represented by agents general in London and the UK had power to conduct external affairs, foreign affairs, in the name of each colony. Diplomat and international affairs expert Adil Kader writes that when the six colonies came to form Australia in 1901, this was done under the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act 1900. Under that law, the British government still had the power to conduct foreign relations for the Australian Commonwealth. It was in 1931 that the British Parliament passed the Statute of Westminster, which gave legal status to the independence of Australia. But this law had to be adopted within the Australian Parliament as well before it would come into effect. And it wasn't until 11 years later, on the 9th of October 1942, that Australia adopted the Act. From that point on, we could pursue our own foreign policy. So why the 11 year gap between 1931, when the Brits said, go ahead, and 1942, when Australia said, okay, we will? Well, Cater says that there were two main reasons. The first was defense. We needed Britain's military partnership in World War II. We were scared of Japan and with good reason. And secondly, we were concerned about states seceding at home if we cut ties to the motherland, mainly Western Australia. We all know what happened in World War II and how Britain got tied up in its European conflicts and we had to enlist the protection of America. And, and that was the first really big step toward de facto autonomy. In a landmark address in December 1941, Prime Minister John Curtin called on support from the USA and declared Australia free from, quote, traditional links of kinship with Great Britain. He also declared war directly on Japan. Previously, Australia only declared war as part of the British Empire. So that was quite symbolically important too. Men and women of Australia, we are at war with Japan. That has happened because in the first instance, Japanese naval and air forces launched an unprovoked attack on British and United States territory. Adil Kader writes that this was considered a pivotal moment in Australian foreign policy. For the first time, Australia expressed to the world its desire to pursue independent foreign policy and replace Britain with America. This shift then finally gave away to the adoption of the Statute of Westminster that we spoke about earlier. The address from Prime Minister Curtin came in the days after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. No other country but Japan desired war in the Pacific. The guilt for plunging this hemisphere into actual warfare is therefore upon Japan. It must have been unnerving for Australian families back then, huddled around their radios in the living room, 
to hear the details of the Japanese attacks. While its diplomatic representatives were actually at the White House, while all the democratic powers regarded the conversations as continuing, Japan ignored the convention of a formal declaration of war and struck like an assassin in the night. For as the dawn broke this morning, at places as far apart as Honolulu, Nauru, Ocean Island, Guam, Singapore and British Malaya, guns from Japanese warships, bombs from Japanese aircraft, shots from Japanese military forces struck death to United States citizens and members of its defence forces, to the peaceful subjects of Great Britain and to her men on ships and on the land. Prime Minister Curtin, these were different times, times when we respected history and the slow evolution of the institutions that created great nations like Britain, Ireland, the US, Italy, Greece. We didn't take those systems for granted. And most importantly, we didn't take the peace and prosperity that they brought for granted in the way some people do today. The most famous line from this 1941 address came from Prime Minister Curtin a little later. This is our darkest hour. Let that be fully realised. Our efforts in the past two years must be as nothing compared with the efforts we must now put forward. Let there be no idle hand. The road of service is ahead. Let us all tread it firmly, victoriously. We here in this spacious land where for more than 150 years peace and security have prevailed, are now called upon to meet the external aggressor. John Curtin calling on the people of Australia to play their part. I wonder how we'd go today if we had a hostile aggressor coming for us. Oh, but Prime Minister, I can't, can't join the, uh, the war effort now. Uh, married at first sight's on and I think someone just misgendered me. And that's all for this week. We'll catch you next Friday for The Other Side Australia. And on Tuesday night, remember, The Other Side interviews streaming at 6 p.m. and available on demand at any time thereafter, as always. And this show, The Other Side Australia, your weekly short circuit summary, 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 summary of the news and commentary of the week, streaming every Friday night at 8 p.m., then available on demand after. So you're fully clued up for the weekend on the news of the week and you can sound really smart at all the social events. If you like the show, remember our saying, don't just like it, share it. The independent media, we really need your active support to keep on doing what we're doing. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.